الله من الشيطان اللعين الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد والثناء لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على خاتم الأنبياء والمرسلين سيدنا ونبينا محمد وعلى أهل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين صلى الله عليه وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين صلى الله عليك يا رسول الله صلى الله عليك يا سيدي ويا مولاي يا أبا عبد الله قال تعالى في كتابه الكريم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم لقد كان لكم في رسول الله أسوة حسنة لمن كان يرجو الله واليوم الآخر وذكر الله كثيرا صدق الله العلي العظيم صلوا على محمد وآل محمد Assalamu alaikum dear brothers and sisters wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh I'd like to begin by extending my warmest congratulations to all of you on this joyous occasion the wilada, the birth of the daughter of the Holy Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi Lady Fatima al-Zahra alayhi salatu wa salam Inshallah, tonight we will begin an in-depth examination of the biography of the Holy Prophet. I don't know how many lectures it will take, but what I do know is that with the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I'd like to cover the life of the Prophet from Zamanul Jahiliyyah, from the pre-Islamic era, all the way to the death of the Holy Prophet at the age of 63 in the holy city of Medina. Now, as Brother Liyat mentioned, we'll be meeting approximately two times every month, so we'll have a bi-weekly program. And moving forward, I'd like everyone to treat these lectures like a class like a course because we're going to cover a lot of information and we're going to go in a lot of depth more depth than many of you are accustomed to you know when we think about the life of the prophet we may know the highlights you know he was born at a certain time he, be, he got married to Khadija we know about the Hijrah we know about Badr, Uhud, Khaybar we know some of the main events of his life. But the purpose of this lecture series is to fill in the gaps, to have a comprehensive understanding of his life. Now, the reason why it's important for us to dissect the life of the Holy Prophet, there are many reasons why we should dedicate time to studying the biography of the Prophet, but perhaps 
The most important reason why we need to study the life of the Prophet is because it's impossible to understand the Holy Qur'an without studying the seerah. Because every ayah in the Qur'an, every surah of the Qur'an is related to the life of the Prophet. Without studying the biography of the Prophet, the Qur'an has no context. You would never know the meaning of if you didn't study the seerah. You wouldn't understand what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala meant when he says, You wouldn't know the meaning of this verse if you didn't know the circumstances of the hijrah. So in order for us to gain a deep appreciation of the Qur'an, we have to be familiar with the primary addressee of the Qur'an. Now, when we look at the life of the Prophet, as I said, his life is the backdrop of the Holy Qur'an. We are studying the life of the most important human being to walk this earth. We are studying the life of an individual of paramount importance who is so spiritually elevated that Allah has enshrined his name and he has placed his name alongside the name of God. Five times every day around the Muslim world, the name of Muhammad ibn Abdullah is mentioned after the name of God. So after you study Tawheed and after you become familiar with God, it's important for us to become familiar with the, with the greatest creation of God represented in the Holy Prophet. If you look at the Qur'an, there are over 50 verses, 50 ayat of the Qur'an where Allah instructs us to follow the Prophet, to follow his example, to emulate him. Now in order for you to follow in someone's footsteps, you have to know how they lived. You have to know about them. So in over 50 verses of the Qur'an, Allah instructs the believers to follow his example. The verse that I began with from Surah Al-Ahzab, Ayah 21, what does Allah say? لَقَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أُسْوَةٌ حَسَنًا Indeed, in the life of the Prophet, in the personality of the Prophet is a perfect example for you. You know, brothers and sisters, when you think about the life of Ayyub, for example, Ayyub is mentioned in the Qur'an as an example of patience. If you look at, for example, the life of Sulaiman, he is an example for us to have humility even when you have supreme worldly power. When you have great political power, it's very easy to become arrogant. Sulaiman is an example of humility even when the world is at your fingertips. But with Rasulullah, 
He is an example in all spheres of human life. Allah doesn't mention that He's an example for you in patience, or He's an example for you in courage or in wisdom. He is a perfect model for you to emulate in all areas of human life. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran, when He speaks about the blessings that He has bestowed upon us, Allah mentions many blessings. That He has flattened the earth for you, that you can benefit from the way that the earth has been created. Allah speaks about the mercy of rain, of food, of health. And usually when Allah speaks about a blessing, He uses the word ni'mah. The word ni'mah means a blessing, a gift. But when Allah speaks about the Prophet, He doesn't say that Rasulullah is a ni'mah for you. He uses a different word to describe the blessing that He has given us in the form of the Prophet. If you go to Surah Ali Imran, ayah number 164, what does Allah say? The word minna also means blessing. But the Arab linguists, they say minna is a ni'matu thaqila. Minna is a special type of blessing that is so significant. It is so weighty that the one who gave it has to remind you of how great it is so you don't take it for granted. لَقَدْ مَنَّ اللَّهُ عَلَى الْمُؤْمِنِينَ إِذْ بَعَثَ فِيهِمْ رَسُولًا So the Prophet, Allah tells us that Rasulullah is the greatest ni'mah that I have given to you. Furthermore, if you look at the Qur'an, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi لَا بَصَلُّ عَلَى مُحَمَّدٍ وَعَلِي مُحَمَّدٍ The Holy Prophet is so great that Allah informed the previous prophets of his status. So it's not that only those who lived during his time knew Rasulullah. The prophets of the past also knew about the spiritual status of the Prophet. For example, if you go to Surah As-Saf, Surah 61, Ayah number 6, Allah tells us about the mission statement of Isa ibn Maryam. Every prophet is given certain duties to fulfill in the society that they have been sent to guide. What does Isa السلام, say? وَإِذْ قَالَ عِيسَى بْنُ مَرْيَمْ يَا بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلِ So Isa السلام, Jesus, the son of Mary, the great messenger of God, he was sent to the Israelites. And he says to them, I am a messenger of God that has been sent to you. And then he mentions his two main duties. Inni Rasulullah ilaykum. 
So the first mission of Isa السلام, is to do what? To confirm the teachings of the Torah. To tell Bani Israel that this is part of the Torah and to also point out the bid'ahs, that these are innovations. This is not part of the Sharia of Musa. So he came to confirm what was actually revealed to Musa and to revise and to address the innovations. And then the second duty of Isa السلام, is what? وَمُبَشِّرًا بِرَسُولٍ يَأْتِي مِنْ بَعْدِ اسْمُهُ The second primary duty of Isa, Isa is not an ordinary prophet. Isa السلام, is one of the prophets of Ulul Azm, one of the messengers of great resolve. He has been given the title of Ruhullah, the Spirit of God. He says, My second duty is to do what? To give glad tidings about the final messenger of God. Half of my mission is what? To prepare you and to teach you and to share with you the qualities of Muhammad ibn Abdullah So you see that the Quran is replete with instructions for us to follow the Prophet. The Quran also mentions that previous prophets were given the task of informing their communities about the coming of the last messenger. Because he's the prophet of Akhir al-Zaman. In fact, many prophets were hoping that Muhammad ibn Abdullah will be from their progeny. But who did Allah give this honor to? Who did Allah give this honor to? Rasulullah himself, he says, Ana da'watu Ibrahim. I am from the dua of Ibrahim Rasulullah is from the line of this great prophet of God. Ibrahim, Ismail, they have the honor of saying that Muhammad ibn Abdullah is our son. And you find that even in Surah Al-Baqarah, they make a dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would raise among the Arabs, someone who will guide them, recite their signs, teach them the book and wisdom and so on and so forth. Now, when we speak about the biography of the Prophet, we refer to it as the seerah, the seerah of the Prophet. This is one of the most important branches of Islamic knowledge. You have ilmul kalam, you have ilmul fiqh, you have ilmul usul al fiqh, and you also have the seerah, the biography of the Prophet. You know the word seerah, the Arab linguists, they say, the ulama of lugha, they say that the word seerah comes and it's derived from the word sayr. Allah in Surah Al-An'am, ayah number 11, what does he say? Qul seeru fil ard. Seerah comes from the word sayr, which means to do what? To travel. 
Now why is it that the Arabs would use the word, the literal word travel when they want to speak about someone's biography? It's because when you study the life of any individual, you are essentially traveling in their shoes. You are traveling in their footsteps. You are seeing the world from their perspective. Now, in this lecture, I want to give you a bit of history about the biographies that were written about the Prophet. And what we are going to use as our primary sources to reconstruct the biography of the Prophet. Now, many books have been written about the life of the Prophet. If you go to any bookstore, there are many books that you can purchase about the biography of the Holy Prophet. But in mainstream Sunni Islam, the most important reference or the oldest, one of the oldest books on the life of the Prophet is the Seerah of Ibn Ishaq. Seerat Ibn Ishaq. This was a biography of the Prophet that was written a little over a hundred years after the death of the Prophet. Now the question is, who is Ibn Ishaq? His name is Muhammad Ibn Ishaq. He was born 85 years after the Hijrah and he died in the year 151 after the Hijrah. He was not a companion of the Prophet, so he never met Rasulullah. He was born in Medina, which is the city where the Prophet lived. So how did he get his information to write the biography of the Prophet? He met with the children and the grandchildren of the Sahaba. So he's born in Medina. Almost everyone in the city, they are the children or the grandchildren of the companions of the Prophet. So what did he do? He went to many of them and he would talk to them. He would ask them to give him information about the life of the Prophet. He spent a great portion of his life gathering all of this biographical information and putting all of this information in chronological order. Another thing that he did that was unique is that when he reported the biography of the Prophet, he used Isnad. You know when you open up a book of Hadith, what do you usually see? You see the chain, the Senate. An Fulan, An Fulan, An Fulan. He wrote the biography of the Prophet with this style. He actually mentions who he received this information from. Now, the book, if it is gathered, it doesn't exist today. But they say that it was a very detailed biography that was about 15 volumes long. And he divided this book into three parts. The first part of the book was called Al-Mabda, which is basically a history of the prophets before Rasulullah, from Adam until the birth of the prophet. He gave a history of humanity, and he followed the lives of many of the prophets. The second part of the book is the Mab'ath. So he speaks about the life of the prophet, he speaks about the previous prophets, and then he speaks about the early life of the Prophet. 
when the Prophet began his mission. And then the last part of the book is the Medani period. His period in Medina. Now you may ask me, do we, the followers of Ahlul Bayt, give a lot of weight to the seerah of Ibn Ishaq? I'll answer the question in the following way. Ibn Ishaq, Muhammad Ibn Ishaq was relying on who to collect his information? The children and the grandchildren of Sahaba. So I want you to keep this in mind. Number two, Muhammad ibn Ishaq, he lived during the time of Imam Ja'far al-Sadiq. Imam Ja'far al-Sadiq was born 83 after the Hijrah and died 184 after the Hijrah. So they were living at the same time in the same city. But Muhammad ibn Ishaq never approaches Ja'far al-Sadiq to ask him about the seerah. Isn't that unusual? That when you want to write the biography of the Messenger of God, you ask everyone except Ja'far al-Sadiq who is the grandson of the Prophet. What does this mean? This means that Muhammad ibn Ishaq deliberately avoided Ja'far al-Sadiq. The next question is, who is ruling the Islamic empire during this time? Bani Umayyah and Bani Abbas. When ibn Ishaq approaches the child of this, the son of this Sahabi, or the grandson of this companion. At the end of the day, we're dealing with different human beings who have different political motivations, who perhaps will share things with you that will portray their parents and their grandparents in a positive light. You know, brothers and sisters, we the followers of Ahlul Bayt, our view of the companions is the view of the Qur'an. Our view of the companions is the view that there are some companions of the Prophet who were obedient, and there were some who were disobedient. There's a hadith that's recorded in many books of Sunni hadith literature, where Rasulullah says to his companions, the Prophet tells his Sahaba, his companions, that you will follow the footsteps of those who came before you inch by inch. Rasulullah says, you will follow the example of previous nations, so much so that if previous nations were to have gone into a lizard hole, you would have followed them. Then the companions, they say, Ya Rasulullah, Al-Yahud wa Nasara, are you saying that we will treat you in the same way that the Jews and the Christians treated their prophets? The Prophet says, yes. Who else would I be referring to? 
If you look at the prophets that were sent to Bani Israel, if you look at the Christians and the Jews, you'll find that some of them adhered to the teachings of their prophet, and others disobeyed. So when we look at the book of Muhammad ibn Ishaq, there's one red, there are many red flags. Number one, the fact that he never approaches Ja'far al-Sadiq. The fact that he is living during the time of the Umayyad dynasty, the Abbasid dynasty, and therefore the history that he writes naturally has to be approved by those who are in power. Because you're going to risk your life if you write something that can upset or pro uh, provoke those who are, who are in power. You know, there's a statement by Winston Churchill, the former Prime Minister of, of Britain. He has a famous statement where he says, History is written by the victors. History is written by who? The people who are dead? The people who are conquered? Or was it written by the conqueror? Is history written by the one who's on the throne? Or the one who's in the marketplace? The ones who are in power have tremendous influence over what is written in the books. So this is the Seerah of Ibn Ishaq. I want you to be familiar with these books. So it's 15 volumes. It was one of the oldest biographies. After Ibn Ishaq, there was a man who came after him by the name of Abdul Malik Ibn Hisham. What he did, he took the 15 volumes of Ibn Ishaq and he summarized it. He knows, he probably knew that you know, people are... You know, they don't have the time to read 15 volumes. He gave an abridged version. He summarized it. He took the first part out where he talks about previous prophets. And he summarized the seerah of Ibn Ishaq. And he also made some revisions. Now, the seerah of Ibn Hisham is with us today. The seerah of Ibn Hisham was written about 50 years after the seerah of Ibn Hisham. So it's one of the oldest existing biographies of the Prophet. And mainstream Sunni Islam depends heavily on the seerah of Ibn Hisham. Now I want to share with you what Ibn Hisham writes in his introduction. Because he made some revisions. He took out some things that, were writ, that was written by the seerah of Ibn Ishaq. What does he say? He says, I omitted the following. Ibn Hisham says, when I wrote my biography, my summarized, condensed version of the life of the Prophet, I took out a lot of the poetry that was written and recorded by Ibn Ishaq. He says, because I found that many of the experts of poetry, they were not familiar with it. So I didn't know where he got it from. So I removed it. So he's mentioning the things that he has deleted. I have omitted things that I felt are disgusting that are repulsive and repugnant. You know, history is a messy science. 
He says, I took out things that were disgusting, that were ugly, that were reprehensible. And then this is the line I want you to, be, to know. This is the line I want you to focus on. Ibn Hisham, what does he say? And I have removed and deleted and omitted things. Ibn Hisham says, I removed things from the biography of the Prophet because I felt that it would offend certain people. This means what? He is telling you that I had to delete some things because I didn't want to provoke certain powerful people. Ibn Hisham wrote his biography of the Prophet when Bani Abbas was in power. So he writes his biography of the Prophet in a way that is appeasing to the Abbasid rulers. I'll give you a simple example of what he does. It is a known fact that in the battle of Badr, which is the first battle of Islam, which happened in the second year after the Hijrah, that one of the prisoners of war was Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet. Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet in the battle of Badr, he was with the enemies. He was captured and he was one of the prisoners. Ibn Hisham, when he mentions the prisoners in the battle of Badr, who does he leave out? He doesn't mention Abbas, son of Abdul Muttalib. Why? Because the Khalifa, that's his grandfather. Ibn Hisham, he lists the prisoners, but he says, I have to delete Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib. Why? Because the Khalifa, who has unchecked power, if he sees that I wrote that Abbas was one of the prisoners, they won't allow it. It would bring shame to them that in the battle of Badr, your uncle fought Rasulullah and now you're the Khalifa? His children are the Khulafa? So they removed it. What else was removed? I'm just giving you a couple of examples. When Ibn Hisham in his seerah mentions the ayah, you know, Rasulullah, when he began his mission, it was a secretive mission. Islam was only being propagated in secret. And then Allah reveals the ayah, Now warn your nearest of kin. Rasulullah gathers the members of his family, about 40 of them from Bani Hashim, and he invites them to Islam, to support him. Ibn Hisham does not mention Hadith al-Dar. He doesn't mention when the Prophet asked for support, how no one supported except the 13-year-old Ali ibn Abi Talib. Not mentioned. Why? Because in that Hadith, Rasulullah says, when he saw that it was only Ali who stood up to support, Rasulullah says, Anta amini. Oh Ali, you are my trusted one, my trustee. Wawasi, you are my successor. Wawaziri, you are my vicegerent. Wawarithi, you are the, my inheritor. Wakhalifati min ba'di, and you are the Khalifa after me. 
Ibn Hisham, he has to omit this. Why? Because mentioning this will cause and lead a lot of people to ask, if the Prophet said this, why are the children of Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib sitting on the pulpit of the Prophet? Why is it not Ali and his sons? It would create a lot of problems for the ruling government. Now, so I've mentioned two books. The Seerah of Ibn Ishaq, which doesn't exist today. And we have the Seerah of Ibn Hisham, which exists today. It's about four volumes. And he basically takes the Seerah of Ibn Ishaq, summarizes it, and makes revisions. Now the question is, who was the first person to write down the life of the Prophet? To actually write certain aspects of the life of the Prophet. The first person was actually a name, and there's a general consensus among historians that it was Ubaydillah ibn Abi Rafi'. Who was this man? The historians say, He was the first one to write the biography of the Prophet, and he was the first one to write about the battles of Islam. Who was he? He was the son, Ubaidillah, the son of Abu Rafi'. Abu Rafi' was one of the servants of the Prophet. He had an exceptional memory. Abu Rafi', the Khadim of the Prophet, he was known for having a very powerful memory. In fact, his memory was so sharp that Ibn Abbas used to come to him. Ibn Abbas is the cousin of the Prophet. He's respected by Sunnis and Shias. He used to come to Abu Rafi' and say to Abu Rafi', مَا صَنَعَ النَّبِيُّ يَوْمْ كَذَا He used to ask Abu Rafi', what did Rasulullah do on this day? You know, most people can tell you what Rasulullah did in the year. You know, second year of Hijrah, Rasulullah fought in the Battle of Badr. Third year of Hijrah, Rasulullah fought in the Battle of Uhud. But how many people have such a sharp memory that they can tell you what Rasulullah did on Wednesday in the month of Sha'ban in the second year after the Hijrah? Abu Rafi had this type of memory. His son collected this information from his father and he wrote a detailed biography of Rasulullah during the Khilafah of Amir al-Mu'mineen Ali ibn Abi Talib salawatullahi alayhi. The question is what happened to this book? Do you know what happened to the book? It was burned by those who were in power. It was burned by the Abbasids. Why? For the reasons that I mentioned. These people, in order to protect their kursi, they have to control the ahadith that are circulating in the Muslim societies. You know, brothers and sisters, after the death of the Prophet, one of the greatest tragedies of Islamic history is what? The policy of man'u tadween al-ahadith. When Abu Bakr came to power, followed by Umar, they had a policy 
that it was illegal, it was forbidden for anyone to convey a hadith from the Prophet. This is known in history. I'll share with you a hadith, a narration from Abu Bakr where he explicitly says this. He says to the Muslims when he becomes the Khalifa, he blames some of the Muslims, some of the Sahaba for reporting so many ahadith. إِنَّكُمْ تُحَدِّثُونَ عَنْ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أَحَادِيثِ تَخْتَلِفُونَ فِيهَا He says, you companions are transmitting ahadith that you differ about. You are not in agreement over what the Prophet said. وَالنَّاسُ بَعْدَكُمْ أَشَدُّ اخْتِلَافًا If you are disagreeing, the people who will come after you will be even, even in more disagreement. So what does he say? What's the solution? So he doesn't say, write them down, let's try to figure out what is sahih and what is inaccurate. What does he say? فَلَا تُحَدِّثُ Listen to this. This is, this is the tragedy of Islam. Abu Bakr, after the death of the Prophet, says to the Muslims, لَا تُحَدِّثُ عَنْ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ شَيْئًا Don't Transmit anything from Rasulullah. And then he says, فَمَنْ سَأَلَكُمْ Whoever asks you about, what did Rasulullah say about this? Or what did Rasulullah do? He echoes the same thing that Umar ibn al-Khattab said on Raziyatu Umar al-Khamis. He says, بَيْنَنَا وَبَيْنَكُمْ كِتَابُ اللَّهِ Abu Bakr tells the Muslims, if people ask you about the ahadith of the Prophet, tell them, we have the book of Allah. halala. Follow what is halal, what is mentioned in the Quran, follow it. What the Quran deems lawful, follow it. haram. And whatever the Quran says is haram, you forbid it. So for at least two to three decades, no Sahabi was allowed to say, Qala Rasulullah. Why? We mentioned. Because if you start sharing what the Prophet said, certain names are going to be brought up too much. Ali, Fatima, Hassan, Hussein. Because when people start to hear their names, what are they going to ask? Okay, if they're so great, why are you in power? So this is how you control the masses, you control the information. After this period, Bani Umayyah comes to power. Bani Umayyah had another tactic. Bani Umayyah doesn't, doesn't say, don't say, Qala Rasulullah. There was not a ban, but rather what did they do? They hired people to fabricate ahadith. If a hadith can be used as a weapon against us, we will use it as our own propaganda machine. This is why when Muawiyah came to power, Muawiyah created a powerful propaganda machine in the form of people who would fabricate a hadith. I'll give you one example just to show you the extent of the fabrications. There's a hadith by Abu Huraira that says that Rasulullah Jibra'il needs the Prophet to have people write down revelation. Abu Huraira 
says that the Prophet says. You know, because people were perhaps uncomfortable with the idea that Muawiyah is one of Kutab al-Wahi. He's one of the scribes. Abu Huraira says, now I want you to know that even Sunnis reject this hadith, but I'm trying to demonstrate that look at how many hadith were being fabricated. Abu Huraira reports, Al-Umana'u Thalatha. The trustworthy ones are three. Who's talking? Rasulullah. Al-Umana'u Thalatha. When you write revelation, you have to be trustworthy for the job. Rasulullah says, Al-Umana'u Thalatha. Ana wa Jibreel wa Muawiyah. There are three trustworthy individuals. Me, I'm Rasulullah, Sadiq al-Ameen. Jibra'een and Muawiyah, the son of Abu Sufyan. You laugh, but believe me, when these ahadith were circulating in Sham, you know, people never met the Prophet. They believed it. That's why Muawiyah was able to rule. Because he bolstered his credibility using these types of traditions. Many of the students of Imam al-Baqir and Imam al-Sadiq were arrested because they were sharing a hadith relating to the Prophet and the Ahlul Bayt. Sulaiman al-A'mash, who was a contemporary of Imam al-Sadiq, a student of the Imam, he was arrested by Mansur al-Diwaniqi. He was arrested for what? For transmitting a lot of ahadith. Mansur, can you imagine how intimidating this is? The Khalifa is interrogating you about a hadith. Mansur says to Sulaiman al-A'mash, فَأَخْبِرْنِي بِاللَّهِ I ask you in the name of God. كَمْ رَوَيْتَ مِنْ حَدِيثِ عَلِي بْنَ أَبِي طالب. How many ahadith have you transmitted about Ali ibn Abi Talib? Sulaiman al-A'mash, he says, شَيْءٌ يَسِيرٌ A small amount. Mansur says, give me a number. He says, مِقْدَارْ عَشَرَةْ آلَافْ حَدِيثِ 10,000 ahadith speaking about the fadail of Ali ibn Abi Mansur, he says, listen, Sulaiman, do you want me to share with you a hadith about the greatness of Ali that is better than all of the 10,000 that you know. I will share it with you under the condition that you do not share it with other Shias. It doesn't mention what he said, but the point that I want to make is that even the Khulafa knew exactly what they were doing. They had a policy, they had no tolerance for dissent. They wanted to have full control of hadith literature. They, they would arrest people who attributed merits to the Ahlul Bayt. Now, everything that I've shared with you should make you understand that when we want to study the book of the Prophet, it's not as simple as picking up the seerah of Ibn Hisham. We have to be investigators. We have to be critical. We have to gather all of these missing puzzles and put them together. But the question is, what, are, what is our source? What are our sources when we want to reconstruct the biography of the Prophet? How do we develop and obtain an accurate 
Sirah of the Holy Prophet. Number one, our most important source in reconstructing the biography of the Prophet is actually the Holy Quran. The Holy Quran has to be the basis. Why? Because the Quran, as I mentioned, represents at least 23 years of the Prophet's life. There are ayats in the Quran that reference the Prophet's childhood. There are verses in the Quran that speak about Zamanul Jahiliya. So the Quran serves as the litmus test. Why? Because everything that we read in the history books has to conform to the Quran. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about the Prophet, وَإِنَّكَ لَعَلَىٰ خُلُقٍ عَظِيمٍ That, O oh Muhammad, you are a man of great akhlaq, great manners, perfect conduct. That means if we find anything in his biography that contradicts and is inconsistent with perfect morality, we throw it out the window. Because we take Allah's description of Rasulullah over the description of a, a person who may denigrate the status of the Prophet. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا رَحْمَةً لِلْعَالَمِينَ We have not sent you as, but as a mercy to the world. If there's anything that we find in the books of history, that portrays the Prophet as a harsh person, we throw it out the window. Because Allah says He is the epitome of Rahmah. He is the epitome of Akhlaq. This is why we reject certain Ahadith, because Ahadith are also a source, because each Hadith is a snapshot of the life of the Prophet. I'll give you an example of two Ahadith that we reject because they contradict Allah's description of Rasulullah. For example, in Bukhari, we as the followers of Ahlul Bayt, we have nothing that is called Sahih, except the Holy Quran. There's no hadith that is above scrutiny. There's a hadith in Bukhari, and the hadith is from Aisha. The hadith goes as follows. She says, And believe me, if you go to many books of the Prophet's life, you'll find these types of reports. But we reject them because of those ayat of the Quran. She says, She says that the Prophet was laying down in my house. He was, it was the day that the Prophet was spending with Aisha. That he was laying down and his thigh was exposed. Now you may say, okay, he's with his family, there's nothing problematic about that. The hadith says Abu Bakr knocks on the door, seeks permission, he enters. The Prophet didn't cover himself. His thigh and his entire leg was exposed. He gave permission for Abu Bakr to come in. He started to chat with Abu Bakr. Exposed. Umar. Umar then comes and knocks on the door. He allowed, he gave permission for Umar ibn al-Khattab to come in. Again, his thigh is exposed. The hadith says he's exposed. He didn't cover up. He started to chat with Abu Bakr and Umar. 
Then Uthman came, knocked on the door. Rasulullah immediately covered up when Uthman ibn Affan entered the house. Aisha notices this. After Rasulullah leaves, she says, Ya Rasulullah, you were uncovered. Abu Bakr came, you didn't cover yourself. Umar came, you didn't cover yourself. Why Uthman? She says, I asked the Prophet, why did you cover when Uthman came? She says, Rasulullah said to me, Ala astahi min rajulin tastahi minhu al-malaika. Should I not be embarrassed and have haya in the presence of the one who malaika are shy in front of? Now I ask you brothers and sisters, with all due respect, does it make sense that the Prophet would behave in such a way? This is clearly a fabrication. Why? This is, this is an Umayyad influenced hadith. Because Uthman ibn Affan is from the Umayyads. The Umayyads are willing to denigrate Rasulullah to elevate someone who's of their tribe. Why do we reject this hadith? Because even an average person doesn't behave like that when, they, when there are guests. Is this hadith consistent with Allah's description of the Prophet? If someone were to do this in front of you, you'll say this person doesn't have akhlaq, he doesn't have adab. So we the followers of Ahlul Bayt, you can call a hadith sahih a hundred times. If it contradicts Allah's description of his Rasul, we put it aside. There is another hadith, just to give you another example. There's a hadith in the section of wudu in Sahih al-Bukhari narrated by Hudayfa who says, This man says, I was with the Prophet and the Prophet went, the Prophet had to go use the bathroom, so he went and he urinated standing outside. You see, brothers and sisters, you know, many people are surprised about what happened to the Ahlul Bayt. There are some people, wallah, they didn't respect Rasulullah for them to respect Ali, for them to respect Fatima to Zara, for them to respect Imam Al Hassan and Imam Al Hussein. The tragedy began here, where the Muslims hear these ahadith, they accept them and they insert them in their sihah. So, number one, our primary source when we reconstruct the biography of the Quran is the Quran. Any historical report has to be consistent with the Quran. Number two, hadith literature. A hadith serve as snapshots of the life of the Prophet. But we, the followers of Ahlul Bayt, we rely heavily on his Ahlul Bayt. We will take from others, but we will seek out his family. Why? Because the Prophet spent the most time with individuals like Ali ibn Abi Talib, with Fatima to Zahra. You know, we're celebrating the birth of Lady Fatima. The narrations say that whenever the Prophet would travel, the last person that he would farewell would be Fatima. 
He would want to spend his last moments before traveling with her. When Rasulullah would return from a journey, the first person that he would visit is Fatima. So we want, if you want to know about Rasulullah, you go to his family. If you want to know about the life of the Prophet, you don't go to the one who became Muslim when Rasulullah conquered Mecca. You can take information from them, but your primary reference should be those who were with the Prophet from the beginning, who were pious, who never disobeyed the Prophet. Amirul Mu'mineen in Nahjul Balagh, what does he say? It's a very painful khutbah because he's giving this khutbah after 23 years. You know, people chose other than Amir al Mu'mineen to lead the Ummah. The Prophet, Imam, he says, he says, you people knew, you were not ignorant. You knew how close I was to Rasulullah. You know, you knew about the unique position that I had with the Messenger of Allah. And then what does he say? This is why we take the biography of the Prophet from Ali. He says, وَضَعَنِي رَسُولُ اللَّهِ فِي حِجْرِهِ وَأَنَا وَلِيدٌ يَظُمُّنِي إِلَىٰ صَدْرِهِ Imam, he says that the Prophet put me in his lap. Meaning I was raised by Rasulullah. When I was an infant, when I was a walid, walid meaning a newborn. When I was a newborn, Rasulullah pressed me against his chest. وَيُشِمُّنِي عَرْفَ I could smell the scent of his body because of how close I was to him when I was a child. He says, the Prophet used to chew the food and put it in my mouth. You know the baby, a baby, a child, a toddler, you know before they have teeth, you have to puree the food, you have to soften it. He says the Prophet would soften it with his mouth. And he would put it in my mouth. You know, you have Muslims today, they're infatuated by Fulan and Fulan because they joined Islam, you know, six years after the Hijrah. When Mecca was, how about the man who was fed by Rasulullah when he was a child? This is the material nourishment, the physical nourishment. How about the spiritual nourishment that Rasulullah gave to Ali? وَكَانَ يَمْضَغُ الشَّيْءِ ثُمَّ يُلْقِمُنِي فَمَا وَجَدَ لِي كِذْبَةً فِي قَوْلٍ وَلَا خَطْلَةً فِي فِعْلٍ Amir al-Mu'mineen, he says, Rasulullah raised me and he never saw me utter a lie. He never saw a single wrongdoing from me. So when we refer to the ahadith, we want to know the seerah of the Prophet through the riwayat of Ahlul Bayt. The people when Rasulullah would speak about them in Hadithul Kisa, what does the Prophet say about his Ahlul Bayt? Allahumma inna ha'ula ahla bayti wa khastati wa hamati lahmuhum lahmi wa damuhum dami. Their flesh is my flesh. Their blood is my blood. We want to take our seerah from those who the blood of Rasulullah is running in their veins. Not the ones who heard something from the Prophet. Those who were the closest ones to the Prophet. And then finally, and we'll conclude here, 
So we mentioned the Qur'an as our reference, the ahadith, we mentioned the biography of Ibn Hisham. You know, there are history books written about Mecca and Medina, the history of Sahabas. We can use all of these things and take the bits and pieces and reconstruct the seerah. But there's also one more thing that we can refer to that many historians ignore. And that is the poetry of Abu Talib. The poetry of Abu Talib. Imam Amir al muminin there's a hadith from Imam Ja'far al-Sadiq salawatullahi Imam Ja'far al-Sadiq, he says, Kana Amir al-Mu'mineen Yu'jibuhu an yurwa shi'ru Abi Talib wa an yudawwan Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib would be happy that he would be happy that people would be narrating the poetry of Abu Talib. And the Imam would want people to record and write down the poetry of Abu Talib. Why? The Imam is talking about his father. Waqal, Imam al-Sadiq says, Imam Ali would usually say, Learn the poetry of Abu Talib and teach it to others. Why? Teach it to your children. Because Abu Talib was on the path of God. Why does the Imam have to say this? Because unfortunately, mainstream Muslims, the Muslim world, they consider him a kafir. Why was he kafir? Because his son was Ali ibn Abi Talib. The father of Muawiyah is Muslim, but the father of Ali ibn Abi Talib is kafir. Imam, he says, he was on the path of God. He was like the believer in the court of Fir'aun. Mu'min al-Fir'aun. Yaktumu iman. He concealed his faith for strategic reasons. But people, because he is the father of Ali, anyone who's connected to Ali has to pay a price. فَإِنَّهُ عَلَىٰ دِينِ اللَّهِ وَفِيهِ عِلْمٌ كَثِيرٌ أمير المؤمنين says وَفِيهِ عِلْمٌ كَثِيرٌ There is a lot of knowledge in the poetry of Abu Talib. In the poetry of Abu Talib, we can gain information about the time of Jahiliyyah. In the poetry of Abu Talib, we have over a thousand lines of poetry attributed to Abu Talib. Abu Talib had poetry about Rasulullah's childhood when they went to Syria. And the Prophet encountered the Christian monk Buhayra. Abu Talib has poetry about the wedding of Rasulullah and Khadija. You know, Abu Talib was the one who did the nikah. He gave a speech on the day that Rasulullah married Khadija. We have information about the early days of Mecca, how the Meccans opposed him up until the Hijrah. So we will also use the poetry of Abu Talib as a valuable resource to reconstruct the biography of the Holy Prophet. We ask Allah Azza wa Jal to bless us and guide us and illuminate our hearts with the teachings of Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad. Wa akhir da'awana and alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa sallallahu ala Muhammadin wa alihi al-tahireen.